You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. I really hope you find this conversation as fascinating as I did. Uh, Julie Batalana is the Joseph C. Wilson Professor of Business Administration in the Organizational Behavior Unit at Harvard Business School. Um, and she's got a new book that she's written with her co-author, Tiziana Cachero, and it's called Power for All, How It Really Works and Why It's Everyone's Business. So it's this really interesting look at power dynamics in ways that I, I certainly didn't understand um, and, and gives you real skills uh, uh, and ideas for how to shift power, um, which is really, really useful. So enjoy this pod. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the two. Julie Batalana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. Um, you open the book by saying, quote, despite its ubiquity, or perhaps because of it, power is still vastly misunderstood, end quote. What don't we understand about power? And I know that's there's a lot, so you can maybe just give us a few things. Yeah, Tiziana and I have identified three main misconceptions about power. And I have to tell you that uh, those misconceptions are very common. And the beauty of uh, the work we've been doing together and separately is that we've had this opportunity to work with people from very different walks of life. And you'd be thinking, do they really have things in common? Well, I'll tell you what they have in common are those misconceptions about power that we've come to see are very, very, very prevalent. So the first misconception is this idea that power is a possession. So people would come to us and they would ask questions such as, Julie, you study power, you teach about power, you advise people. Can you give me the list of the personal traits that make people powerful? And it's almost like, what they want is the magic recipe. And some people would be saying, well, maybe I have these traits or maybe I don't have them. And if I don't have them, if I'm lucky, maybe I can somehow learn how to become that kind of person. But people think I just have it or I don't, or maybe I'll acquire it, but it has to be some kind of a possession. The second misconception about power is this idea that power is only for the people at the top. That it's mm -hmm. for the presidents, for the CEOs, for the top executives, the prime ministers, and that it's not for others. So a lot of people would tell me, anyway, you know, power is not for me because I'm not one of these people. 
And then the, the third and maybe the most widespread misconception about power is this idea that power is dirty. So now put all of them together. What would happen is that people would quite often tell me, hey, you know what, Julie, I don't think I have those personal traits and characteristics. And I'm not one of these people at the top. But you know what? Good for me. Good for me, because at least I'm not getting my hands dirty. And so what we wanted to do with the book is help people understand power to debunk these free fallacies and help them engage with power in a clean way so that they can have the impact they want to have. Uh, yeah, the, the 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 book was. I, I'm sort of obsessive about this book in in light of uh, the work we do at, at Second City and the work that we're doing to change things or 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 reinforce things that work. Um, you say in the book, "quote Individual and collective power are joined at the hip," and just generally speaking, th- this idea that power is always relational that that is not. And this this comes up in the podcast all the time. And I don't I don't know if it's peculiar to American minds, but it seems to me we're, we're obsessed with the myth of the soul genius where, you know, we, we, we think of things as highly linear or one, one, you know, one person holds that, but it's not, it's like, and it shifts and it changes. It's not static either. Right. Absolutely. So in, in fact, you're right to highlight it. Power is always relational. And if you want to understand it once and for all, you just have to understand what we call in the book, the fundamentals of power. And so what are these fundamentals of power? I have power over you, Kelly, Mm -hmm. if I control access to resources that you value, to resources that you need and want. Yeah. But you also have power over me if you control access to resources that I value, that I need and want. So for example, it could be that you are connected to someone I absolutely need to talk to because they have the expertise I need to complete the project I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And if so, you have some power over me and you, you have a lot of power over me if you happen to be the only person I know who's connected to that person, right? Yeah. Now, in the meantime, it could be that I control access to a budget that you need to complete the project that you are working on. So you do have power over me, but in that situation, it happens that I also have power over you, right? So it's completely relational. And importantly, once you know that power is about control over access to valued resources, then you get to understand, as you mentioned, that power is never static. It always evolves. It could be that I have a lot of power over you today, but that I will not have that much power tomorrow. And it could be that I have zero power today, but I may well have a lot of power tomorrow, depending on how things change. And and that obviously depends on the context in which our relationship is going to unfold. And, and in fact, in the book, we, we share one story that to me is quite telling about, about the, the relational nature of power and the fact that power is not a possession. Mm-hmm. It's the story of um, a woman called Nezuma and Jube. And so uh, when we met Nezuma and, and when we interviewed her, she described to us her life in Tanzania. That's where she lives. And she lives in a quite remote rural community. And... Uh, she told me when, when we talked that her dream from a very young age was to become a teacher. Uh, that didn't happen, though, because she never had access to education. And so in our first conversation, she said to me that for quite a long time, she felt powerless in that community. She mm-hmm. didn't have access to education. She married at a young age. She was very clear about the fact that women were not represented on the very powerful village council that made all the decisions. 
And yet in 2016, things radically changed. She went from feeling quite powerless and quite objectively being quite powerless to becoming one of the most powerful people in her community. So much us, she even became the first woman to sit on the village council. And so how did that happen? Well, in 2016, Nezuma encountered a not-for-profit organization called Barefoot College that came to her village. And why is it that Barefoot College ended up changing Nezuma's life? Well, Barefoot College gave her access to a very special training that they developed that's truly innovative, that enables them to train illiterate women across the global south who live in remote rural communities like Nizuma to become solar engineers mm. through learning by doing. So uh, when Barefoot College arrived in the village and asked for a volunteer who would go for the training, as you can imagine, it's mostly men who raised their hands. But what Barefoot College explained is that it would have to be a woman because that's the approach they have, that it, you know, they work with women across, across the world. And uh, Nezuma raised her hand, went through the program, and after five months of training, she came back to her community. And uh, what she did at the time was that she brought access to electricity to everyone in that community. She was now in control of one of the most valued resources in that community, electricity. So she didn't only literally bring power to the community, she became powerful herself mm -hmm. because now she was the one controlling access to electricity. She went from being powerless to being one of the most powerful people in the community. And again, this is about the fundamentals of power. Who controls access to resources that others value? Yeah, and, and, and again, the shortcuts that we take is things like assuming that all corporate CEOs are all powerful. When when and I was joking about this with our uh, uh, C, um, COO, <laughs> and she's like, "I'm powerful. I don't. I don't think. So. I mean, because you know, a lot of times you can't get stuff done. This is this is so true. And and you're you're right to say that this is a shortcut that we have a tendency to take. We're sort of thinking, okay, let me let me see who's powerful here. Can I see the organizational chart? In fact. This is such a common mistake. When we work with people, this is exactly what they do. But power and authority are not the same. Mm -hmm. We said that power, what is it? Right? It is the ability to influence other people's behavior. And what is authority? Authority is the formal right to give orders and commands. Now, being at the top, being the CEO, being at the top of this organizational chart can be a source of power. And in some situations, it is. And by the way, there are certain companies, certain organizations, and certain countries where being at the top certainly gives you more power, especially the organizations, the countries that have tighter cultures. Right? Mm -hmm. Think about a country like Japan. If you're at the top, this authority certainly gives you some power. But even in these tighter environments, being at the top is never a guarantee of power. And importantly, you do not need to be at the top to have power. And that brings me to a, a, a funny anecdote that's about a group of French researchers. And as you can hear to my accent, I'm not a pure Bostonian. I'm a hybrid American-French Bostonian. 
Mm-hmm. And so uh, let me take you to France for, for just a couple of minutes. So yeah. this group of French researcher, researchers uh, in the 1960s wanted to actually better understand the factors that would affect the productivity of workers on the floor of factories. So what did they do? They, they, they picked a factory. So at the time, they picked a cigarette factory. And so they went to study the factory. They wanted to see how workers worked with each other on the floor of that factory. Before they started their observation, they met with the top managers of that organization and they asked for the organizational chart. They got the organizational chart and then they started their observation. After two days, they went back to meet with the top managers and here is what they told them. You probably gave us the wrong organizational chart. And so the top managers looked at them puzzled and say, well, we're not stupid. We're not running 20 organizations. We're only running one. And we gave you our organizational chart. So then the researchers explained that it was very puzzling to them because they could see on the organizational chart that the workers were reporting to foremen who were reporting to middle managers, who were reporting to top managers, and then you had the CEO. But somehow, when any of these people, like the top managers, the middle managers, the foremen, came to the floor and asked the workers to do something, the workers didn't seem to care that much. Mm-hmm. But when maintenance workers in charge of fixing the machines came and asked the workers to do something, the workers were quite frustrated, but they immediately complied. The issue, though, is that those maintenance workers were as low as the workers in the organizational hierarchy. So if you had looked at the organizational chart, we would have said, well, these maintenance workers certainly do not have much power. They ended up being the most powerful people in the organization. Why so? Again, it's about the fundamentals of power because they controlled access to a resource everyone needed, working machines, and they knew it. So here is what they did. They never wrote anywhere how to fix machines. They never shared this information with anyone outside their group. They remained in control of that knowledge and kept the power that they had. That's not what I would advise people to do, certainly, in such situations. But that shows that these people who were at the bottom actually had a lot of power. And this is also what we see with Tiziana in our research. The, The most effective change makers are not the CEOs in most situations, are not the people at the top. They are the people who are central in the network of the organization, the people to whom others go for advice, because these are the trusted people and trust is a huge conduit of influence. So again, you don't need to be at the top to have a lot of power. Yeah, we had Michelle Gelfand on the podcast, and it it strikes me that that could happen in France, which is a loose culture, probably wouldn't happen in Japan, right? Or, Or other tight cultures. I'm so glad you're talking about Michel Gelfand because as you probably understood, as I was talking about tighter cultures yeah. and thinking about looser cultures, I was thinking about her excellent work and excellent book. So you're right to say, take the example of Japan, a much tighter culture. Being at the top gives you more power than oh. it would in another kind of culture. Michel would say, take Israel, a much looser culture. Being mm. at the top in this environment is not going to give you much power. But even in Japan, even in Japanese corporations, Japanese social enterprises, not-for-profits. If you go talk to people, get to understand the power relationships, you get to see that even in that environment, that's quite a top-down environment, being at the top is no guarantee of power, and you do not need to be at the top to make change happen. 
Right, 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 right. So you have, and I think the listeners are, our listeners are going to be interested in this. There's four strategies for shifting the balance of power. And I think everyone wants to know these. So I'd love to go through them. They are attraction, consolidation, expansion, and withdrawal. So let's start with attraction. Yes, you're right. So once you know that power is about this control over access to the resources, then you can think about each of the four strategies. Let's think about our relationship, Kelly. Yep. So um, how can I gain more power in our relationship? Well, the first thing I can do, as you said, is attraction. I can try to convince you that what I have to offer to you is of more value than what you ever really understood before. Mm -hmm. That's precisely what marketing specialists are doing with all of us all the time, trying to convince us that this watch we don't have, this car we don't have, (laughs) these are things we need and that somehow will make us happier or stronger, whatever, right? That's the kind of narrative that people would be using. So that's what you do with attraction. You try to convince someone that what you have to offer is more important to them than what they thought. That's not the only thing I can do, though, to gain more power or to rebalance power in our relationship. The other thing that I can do is um, to actually think about the alternatives to me you have to access the resources that I have to offer to you. Um, It could be that um, I have access to a person you absolutely need to connect with. Yep. Uh, because that person is so critical to, you know, like the next show you're going yep. to be working on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could also be that I'm one of literally 500 people who you know and who happen to have access to that person. And it's so realistically, I do not have much power. Right Now, that being said, if I find a way to become the only person right, to have access to the resources that you need, then I'm gaining a lot of power. Now, think about unions. Right. What is it that workers have done with unions? They've used precisely that kind of consolidation strategy. They yeah. understood that by themselves, they really didn't have much power in their relationship with their employers. But that if they got together, if they were able to consolidate, then they could gain a lot of power because now their employers didn't have as many options anymore. Like if you want to deal with me, you have to deal with everyone. And, you know, we're not going on strike by ourselves. We're going on strike together. And so you have to deal with all of us. I'm limiting the pool of channels you have to access the resources that you need. Now, that's a set of strategies, right? Attraction, consolidation. But if you're thinking about rebalancing power in any relationship, you shouldn't be thinking only about how you can gain some power in that relationship. You also have to be thinking about what could you do to potentially decrease the power of the other party in that relationship. Mm. So now what could I do if I think about our relationship? Well, you're running this podcast. It could be that um, I'm now thinking about this other book that I've just finished that I'm go- it's going to come out next year. And I'm sort of now thinking, well, it'd be great if I could be back on, on Kelly's show and talk about that book and then benefit from the great visibility. Well, in that situation, I'm clearly dependent on you, right? Now, what I could potentially do is sort of say to myself, you know what? I'm done with podcasts. I'm, I'm, I'm turning my back. This is a withdrawal strategy. I don't need podcasts anymore. I'm actually going to be using another route. Uh, It may not be a wise decision, but now podcasts never again. 
Like in that kind of situation, I'm decreasing the power that you could have over me. And that's what I refer to as withdrawal. But again, that's not the only strategy, right? The, the fourth thing that I can potentially do is uh, to decrease your power is try and expand the number of options I have to access the resources you have to offer to me. Think about uh, a situation in which many of us have been in, right? We're, we're talking to our employer, we want to get a raise, we want to maybe work on another project, we want a different role, and our employer is not being receptive. Like they are somehow not engaging in that conversation the way we would want. So what could you do? Well, what you could do in that situation is what a lot of people do, which is reach out to other organizations, could be other not-for-profits, could be other companies, could be other public organizations, other social enterprises, depending on your sector, and try and generate other job offers. And then go back to the table and tell your current employer, hey, here are the conditions I have at these other places. This is a pool of options I have. I've considerably extend- expanded right, the pool of options. Um, and I'll stay under this set of conditions. And in that situation, you've decreased the power of the other party and you're now able to engage in that relationship, having really rebalanced power. So fascinating, because we don't, we don't think about it this way. And, the, and this, it's almost like a new math that you've given uh, us in which we can be like, oh, okay, in this situation, I have power, or, or now I have these, these tools, these strategies that I can consider uh, when I want to when I need to get what I, what I want to get. And, and the, the book deals with this hugely all over, which is that doesn't have to be a bad thing. That can be for a, a greater good, right? And so I want you to talk a little bit about, people do think power is dirty. I get that. And, and, and in fact, because we have a lot of studies, right? That, that people with a lot of power are less empathetic, um, less, they, they, don't, they don't see the things that the rest of us see. Um, and, uh, so what are, what are the guardrails that we need if we want to consolidate our power and use it for good rather than evil? I'm so glad you're going there because when we talk about those strategies to rebalance power, I'm always anxious that we're going to end there because now people start thinking, oh my gosh, it's purely transactional, Yeah, which it can be. And this is how some people are using power. And this is how some people are trying to get ever more power. But what's important is that, as we explain in the book, we want people to understand power, but we also want them to think about what they want to use their power for and how they're going to be using it. And that's tightly connected to what you're talking about now. Think about the fundamentals of power you said as, you know, like this new math. To me, it's like infrared glasses that yeah. I'm hoping you can now put on to see and understand, understand things that maybe you couldn't see and understand as well before. Yeah. But the critical question of now, wait, how are you going to use your power is still this fundamentally ethical, philosophical question that we all have to answer. And what we explain in the book is that although power can be dirty, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be. And I'm saying that power can be dirty because if you look back, in history, if you think about your own experience, if you look at all the research in social psychology that you were also referring to, we do know indeed that power does two things to human psychology. It makes us 
more hubristic. When we are in powerful position for some time, we start thinking that, well, maybe we deserve to be there. We're better than others. And <laughs> this is it, right? We've, we've arrived and others are so fortunate to be able to turn to us. We are so wise. We're so strong. The second thing that power does to human psychology is that it tends to make us less sensitive to others. When we've been in powerful positions for some time, we start thinking that it's all about us, right? It becomes harder to put ourselves in others' shoes. Now, those are what we call in the book the poisons of power. This is a reality. Power can intoxicate us. And let me be very clear, it can intoxicate all of us. But the good news, and again, we know that from our experience, from history and from research, including research that Tiziana and I have conducted, but the good news is that what we know is that they are antidotes to the power poisons. What's the antidote to hubris? Well, the antidote to hubris is humility. And what's the antidote to self-centeredness? The antidote to self-centeredness is empathy. So what we have to do if we want to engage with power cleanly is cultivate humility and cultivate empathy. Now, that being said, doing so is not enough. And I say doing so is not enough because we're only human, right? right? And I may really make an effort and and in my everyday life try and do everything I can to I can to cultivate empathy and humility. But we are never immune to the dangers of power abuse. And, and one story we share in the book is the story of Vera Cordero. Uh, Vera uh, is a social entrepreneur in Brazil. She's a, a pediatrician by background. She has dedicated her whole life to fighting poverty and trying to help uh, some of the poorest kids in Brazil and in the world who do not have access to the medication that would save their lives. Now, she's done that by creating a truly innovative model. She got to realize early on in her career that if she wanted to help the kids, she had to help the families. And so she works with the families on their global health situation, on their housing situation, um, education, access to employment. And this multidimensional model has enabled her to um, improve the lives of 75,000 people uh, in Brazil, who she's helped come out of extreme poverty in sustainable ways. And this methodology, multidimensional methodology, has now helped more than a million people across the world get out of situations of extreme poverty. So you'd be thinking, if someone is not at risk of abusing her power, it has to be Vera. Like she created a not-for-profit organization, Instituto Dara, to help implement this multi-dimensional kind of approach to helping solve this really, really wicked problem of poverty and access to care for the poorest kids in the poorest communities in the world. Um, her whole life is about others. Her whole life is about cultivating uh, humility and empathy. And she had always been very, very intentional about doing it. Though, when I talked to her, she in a very candid and courageous way told me that she herself at some point abused her power. How did that happen? Well, as Instituto Dara become more well-known in Brazil, as she herself became more well-known in Brazil and internationally, uh, she won a number of awards. She became 
a frequent speaker at conferences at the World Economic Forum. And at some point, her employees confronted her and her family confronted her. And here is what they said, Vera, why are you all about those celebrations for this and this award? Why are you more interested in hanging out with these pseudo-important people than hanging out with us? Her employees told her that she was not able to listen the way she used to, that she kept interrupting them. She became aware of the fact that even though she was working hard to cultivate humility and empathy, she had become a victim of the poisons of power. So what did she do? Not only she doubled down on practicing you know, humility, empathy. In her case, she actually engaged in meditation. We all have different ways mm -hmm. to do that, but that was her approach. But, and that's the critical thing, she didn't stop there. She also changed the processes and systems in her organization to make sure that others would actually hold her accountable and make sure that she was not abusing her power. So how did she do that? She made it clear that now in meetings, she would be the last one to speak. And there would be a rotation and everyone would speak and she would not interrupt people. And if she did, people would actually have to give her a hard time. She also changed the other processes and systems to make sure that there would be real checks on her power. So the bottom line is, if you want to engage cleanly with power, cultivate empathy, cultivate humility, create processes and systems to share your power internally, and do not only accept, but welcome the checks on your power. Uh, I actually, right before we started taping, I was on another call and I shared uh, uh, some research that you have in the book uh, where you write, quote, the extent to which team members take turns speaking is among the strongest predictors of team performance. And I love this idea of the, the sharing of the conversation, which is a complete yes and. That's, that's the idea. Like we're, you're going to offer, I am going to build on that with the expectation that you are going to build back. And I'm never saying no to what you're doing. I'm saying, and when you think about it, that's merely a practice for what you're talking about, except uh, the, like human beings have all this great research and, and we often don't give our, our, somehow it doesn't go to people's hands as a way to practice how to communicate, let's just say communicate, which is a major thing that we do every single day, but you know, we're not necessarily taught that or given these practices. Um, and and the, the other research not from this book, I don't think I saw it, was this idea of whoever speaks first has proportionally way more chance of everyone following what they say. Absolutely. And so what, what leaders too often fail to understand is that if you have the kind of humble approach and empathetic approach that Vera ended up right, reviving for herself and within an organ her organization. So you, you're not only in that situation really increases the chances that you're not going to abuse your power, but the other thing you're doing is that it's a gift to yourself and your team yeah. because yeah. the teams that have created this kind of more humble culture where I know I can turn to you, we should listen to each other and we're going to carefully listen to each other and, and we'll listen to everyone in the room. These teams tend to be more effective than mm -hmm. others. And, and, and so that's something that people need to understand. We have to also admit that it means that leaders have to let go of a number of their preconceptions and also have to come to terms with the fact that power is not a zero-sum game. Like yeah. If I gain some power today over you, it doesn't mean you're losing the power you have over me. So what leaders, executives have to understand is that it is important that they do not only give a voice to the people they work with, but that they listen to them and work together and respect their need and desire for autonomy, because this is how people can bring their best self at work. 
All right. Uh, I'm going to ask you for your yes and story in a moment. But before we do that, one more thing. I want you to talk about betweenness centrality, because I found this a, a fascinating idea of sort of the, the living between people or things as a, as a position of power. So what we discussed earlier was being central, right, in the network of an organization, when you're, you're the go-to person within an organization, right? If everyone comes to me for advice, then I'm the central person in the organization. What you're talking about now and what we explain in the book is that another kind of position in a network is that you may well be connected to organizations, to groups of people that are not connected to each other. So in that kind of situation, this is the kind of in-between centrality that we're talking about, which is here you are at the center of the hub, talking to different groups of people, different kinds of organizations that are not talking to each other. Yeah. Now, that can give you a great deal of power. Why? Because especially think about it in the artistic field, right? You now have access to all of these really interesting ideas and perspectives. And I'm sure you've already experienced that. Sometimes just in talking to these very different people that you can have this idea for a play that you yeah. know had been on your mind for some time, but yeah. you were missing something. And now you're talking to someone who's coming at you with a different perspective. And here it is. That now it's going to become a reality. So what you have is access to novel ideas. That's the kind of network that's going to enable you to be more innovative. The issue, though, sometimes when you are in that kind of position, and the, the network theorists say that you're in a structural whole position, right? You're controlling the access to information coming from these different groups of people not connected to each other. The issue that you can face is that um, this is not the kind of network that always conducive to trust, right? Because it's not a network in which everyone knows each other and we can so easily work together and accomplish even complex tasks together because we're so used to working together or you're so used to hanging out together. And now you're hanging out with people and group of people that are not hanging out with each other. So uh, if you want to be able to use that, that, that power, you have to develop the trust with all of those different entities and groups of people. But I'll tell you the truth ultimately. The truth is that if you are in that kind of position and if you're using your power not only to advance your own objectives, but to try and empower others, which is what Tony Morrison told our students to do. If you have any power, right, your responsibility, your job is to empower other people. Yeah. Then what you should do is introduce these people to each other and these groups to each other so that they can together learn, they can together create more value for others and not only financial, but also social and environmental value. So my hope is that in reading that book, a number of people who occupy those positions will understand that it is the responsibility to try and help all of us orchestrate change in society by connecting these different people and helping them work together to help solve the social and the environmental problems that we're facing. Yeah, my story, I have a story about that, which was um, Adam Grant, who's sort of a, an old friend, uh, contacted me and said, I've got, he had a friend who was moving to Chicago and would I take her to lunch? And I'm like, of course. And, and this woman was I Jen Poo. Uh, who's a MacArthur oh. genius grantee and, and uh, is now one of my best friends. Uh, I had, I, I just did this because of like, well, it's Adam and I don't want to be part of his next book about being, you know, an uh, so uh, uh, I did it. And then what ended up happening is iGen and Second City uh, and her group, Caring Cross Generations and the Cleveland Clinic created an improvisation for caregivers program. 
So we were able to actually do something really good and give people skills building in what it means to be a resilient caregiver. Um, and that wouldn't have happened unless we all didn't enter the space, just willing to see what might happen by having a conversation. This is fascinating. You're giving this example, Kelly, because so both of these people have played an important role in the writing of this book. Adam has been, you know, like our angel since the beginning of the process. He's been the one doing exactly what you just described and what he does with so many other people, connecting us to people we were not connected with. And it's through those connections and the relationships we built that we learned and that the book became reality. So it's interesting to see that, you know, he he wrote that really important book about Mm -hmm. giving, right? And, and, and he's role modeling in his everyday life, this kind of approach. He is indeed trying to connect people instead of trying to benefit just for himself. And, and that's how he's creating value for so many others. And, uh, to me, it's really moving that he connected you to Agent Pooh because I've been following the National Domestic Worker Alliance and yeah. they are in the book. And I had the opportunity to interview Agent for this book. And, and to me, what she's done is such an important example of not only agitation to help people understand the issues we're facing in society, but also innovation and orchestration for change implementation. Um, and uh, so it makes me very happy to know that uh, those were the two people who came to your mind. They are living examples of how you can create more value for others by connecting them and how you can orchestrate change in society. Yeah, and I channel someone who has who has power uh, and is kind and and good and all the things you would want. I mean, it's a perfect model. All right, uh, do you, I, we always ask for a yes and story. Do you got a yes and story for us? I do, and in fact, the the book itself is is uh, the result of a yes and story. Um, so I have to take you back. I think it was maybe three years ago or more. Um, what happened is that um, I gave a call to Tiziana um, one afternoon, just out of the blue. And, and here's what I told her. I said to her, hey, you know, we've been researching on the politics of change in organizations and in society for, you know, it had been more than 15 years at the time. And, and teaching on power and influence, she is teaching at the University of Toronto. I'm teaching at Harvard University. And we're both teaching across the world in different kinds of environments. And I, here's what I told her. I said to her, I think there is a need. There is a need for, for a, a different kind of book and, and a new book on power because there are a number of issues. Uh, and here's what I told her. I said, you have a number of books on influence you know, yeah. and how to gain it and exercise it. And a number of these books are really well done and really important, but they concentrate on interpersonal relationships. And then you have... A number of books, again, some of them really good and important on what's happening in society at the system level, the importance of democracy and what it takes to change systems. But what I felt was missing was a book that would help people understand the connections, right? We, we talked early on about how your own power is connected to how power yeah. is distributed in society. And, and uh, I told her that I felt that book was needed. And most importantly, that I felt that what was needed was a book that would be about power, but for everyone. Like Machiavelli wrote his book, you know, in the 15th century for the prince. And I, I told her that I felt we should be writing a book about power for all. Mm-hmm. Because my experience in the classroom was that many of the female students I had and many of the students I had who uh, were connected to racialized communities felt that a lot of these books about power were not for them. Like the, the, the examples were all of white men who were powerful and wanted to gain ever more power. And 
not only they couldn't relate, but they didn't want to relate because they didn't want to use their power in that way. And so I told Tiziana, I think a book is needed, but here is what I said. I also said, listen, I called you to share this crazy idea, but I, I probably don't have time. You probably don't even have time to talk about that now. And that's probably not how we should be using our, our, our energy and time because we were both working on a number of projects. I, at the time, had just on the Social Innovation and Change Initiative to support social change makers at Harvard and beyond. And she was working on other projects. And then the following morning, she gave me a call. And, and she said, yes, the book is needed. And why don't we write that book together? And mm. that was the beginning of the, you know, the, the whole journey of uh, writing the book. And it took a village. We talk about Agent yeah. Poo and Adam Grant being mm. part of that village. And now, Kelly, you're part of it as well, trying to <laughs> help us spread the world. And, and my hope is that um, the book will actually enable people to understand things that they didn't fully understand before and that it's going to be helpful to everyone. Uh, and so what's interesting, I have to tell you, though, is that we really started writing that book thinking about the people who've been excluded from power and, and yeah. wanting to give them the keys. The world has changed a lot over the past 18 months, right? We've all been experiencing this terrible pandemic, but we've also become more aware of the terrible social and economic crisis of inequality we're all facing on top of the environmental crisis. And so what has to happen today is a lot of power sharing in organizations, in companies, in society. We also have to hold those in power accountable, not only for financial performance, but also social and environmental performance. And so what we've come to realize is that, yes, it's a book for those who've been excluded from power. It's a book for those who want to understand it. But it's also a book for those in power because we need to help them understand that it's time to share their power and that they can do it. And that if they do it, they will not be weaker, but that to a certain extent, they'll be stronger because we'll be stronger all together. And if that doesn't happen, um, you know, we actually cannot afford it. Like we're going to be... Uh, destroying our planet and further increasing inequalities. And, and that's not an option. So we have to work with them and they have to share power. So it's a book for everyone, <laughs> yeah, including I, I those can't... who've been in power and want to learn how to share it. Yeah, the only way we do this is together. There's no yes. other way. So the book is called Power for All, How It Really Works and Why It's Everyone's Business. Julie Batalana, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Getting the SAN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumbledare, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
sauvage. 